This is The Rounds Table. All right, welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. I am joined again by my brother, John Fralick. And this week, we are still on the theme of um, sort of metabolic type stuff. Last month, we talked a lot about semaglutide. Uh, This time, we'll have a couple studies unrelated to semaglutide. So, uh, John, first and foremost, uh, how are things out west? You know, things aren't too bad out here. The summer weather has finally shown up, which is great. Uh, You know, a fun fact about Calgary is that it pretty much guaranteed to snow in May, and that's never that fun so uh, nice to no longer have any snow yeah fair enough all right john well uh what's the uh, first article that you're gonna chat with the listeners about today so first we're gonna talk about a study from new england journal of may of this year and it's the final report of a trial of intensive versus standard blood pressure control aka the sprint trial and this was by the sprint research group all right and what was the research question here Well, the question here is, should we be targeting a lower systolic blood pressure in patients at risk for cardiovascular disease? Right. And I mean, obviously, we all know about the SPRINT trial. I feel like it didn't change anyone's practice. But anyway, here's another study. So maybe these results um, will, uh, will change our practice. So why was this important? Well, you're right. So SPRINT, it came out a few years back. It was 2015 when they released preliminary results. The trial was halted early because of benefit in the intensive treatment group. Specifically, they showed that there were fewer of the primary outcome as well as a reduction in all-cause mortality. But this was a trade-off because of increased adverse effects, including hypotension, syncope, and AKI. And, you know, if you look at kind of the Canadian guidelines with CHEP, If you kind of dig down into it, there was a suggestion that in those with non-diabetic CKD to consider targeting a blood pressure of less than 120 systolic, but to do it on an individualized basis. So now the investigators are giving us the final report. So let's see, maybe is there more impetus to actually go forward and follow the sprint recommendations? Hmm. Okay, interesting. I didn't actually even realize Chet noted that. So uh, what was the study designed here? So this was a randomized control trial. Patients were enrolled from 2010 to 2013 at 102 clinical sites. The age was 50 years of age and older. They had to have a blood pressure between 130 and 180 systolic with or without medication. And then all of them had at least one cardiovascular risk factor, which was clinical or subclinical cardiovascular disease, chronic kidney disease, which was a GFR of 20 to 59, a Framingham risk score of 15% or greater, or an age of 75 or older. Now, a big caveat with SPRINT is that they did exclude patients with diabetes, with stroke, also patients with dementia. Now, patients were randomized one-to-one to target a systolic blood pressure of less than 120 versus less than 140. There were no specifics for the type of blood pressure pill, but there was sort of an algorithm for, based on the follow-up period, if they weren't at target, how to try to optimize blood pressure control. They had quarterly follow-ups. And then there were a bunch of different outcomes. The primary outcome was a composite of MI or ACS, stroke, acute heart failure, or death from cardiovascular cause. And then some of the secondary outcomes included the individual components as well as all-cause mortality. They also looked at some renal outcomes. And so in CKD patients, the main composite renal outcome was end-stage renal disease or a 50% decline in GFR. And they also had renal outcomes for non-CKD patients. And that was defined as a 30% decline in GFR. Median follow-up was about 3.8 years, so just shy of four years. All right. And uh, what did the patients look like? 
Well, 9,300 patients were randomized. The baseline mean age was 68, 30% were over the age of 75, about 30% had CKD, and about 20% had prior cardiovascular disease. Okay. <laughs> and it sounds like, and a lot of them were falling or having side effects from aggressive blood pressure control. But anyway, okay, I'll slow down. What were the main results? Well, the primary outcome, which was that composite of cardiovascular kind of events, occurred in 1.77% per year in the intensive group versus 2.4% in the standard of care arm. This was a hazard ratio of 0.73 with uh, you know, confidence intervals of 0.63 to 0.86. Looking at the all-cause mortality outcome, this was 1.06% per year in the intensive group versus 1.41% in the standard group. And this was also, you know, favoring intensive blood pressure control with a hazard ratio of 0.75 that was statistically significant. Uh, both of these outcomes were actually similar for what the initial data showed. So there wasn't like kind of a big change here. There were other things that they looked at. So rates of myocardial infarction, congestive heart failure, death from cardiovascular causes were significantly lower in the intensive blood pressure group. In those patients with CKD, there was no difference in renal composite outcomes. But in those patients without CKD, they did show that there were higher rates of GFR reduction in the intensive blood pressure group. Hazard ratio was 3.67. Now, after the fact, they also noted that there were higher rates of acute congestive heart failure presentations, and the authors weren't entirely clear for why that might have been the case. Now, importantly, as you said, you know, what about all the falls? Well, there were higher rates of side effects hypotension, electrolyte abnormalities, renal failure, syncope, all occurred more frequently in the intensive blood pressure control group. That signal for kind of AKI or reduction in GFR, a lot of the acute kidney injury had resolved within one year. Yeah, probably because they stopped taking their drugs. Like, I mean, I think the tricky part here is that it's when you talk about these relative risk reductions, they sound so impressive. You know, hazard ratio 0.7, hazard ratio 0.75, like that sounds impressive. But the absolute risk difference are tiny, you know, like 1.7% versus 2.4%. I don't know. Anyway, what are the main limitations here? So, you know, by design, they did not include diabetic patients or patients with stroke. And so that then limits some of the generalizability. Some other things to consider is that for us, where a lot of our patients are from long-term care, they had actually excluded patients from long-term care. So again, doesn't apply to those patients either. And one thing that, you know, I was just kind of thinking through, and maybe I'll kind of talk it out loud. Tell me what you think. Only about 9% of patients in both group were not on any medication at baseline. So most patients were in fact on about two drugs to control their blood pressure at baseline. You then get randomized. And if you get randomized to the standard of care group, there's a chance that you might've actually had some medications taken away because maybe your blood pressure was too well controlled within the standard of care group. And so perhaps then might the outcomes have worsened for those patients in the standard of care arm, which is then kind of artificially inflating the effect that we're seeing within the treatment group. I don't know. Yeah, no, I'd believe that. I, I just, I think the bigger issue for me is just how on earth are you going to convince a middle-aged person who feels like kind of fine, right? Like their hypertension isn't causing them any acute issues to then take more drugs for many, many years, and you have a small slice in an absolute risk reduction. I don't know. I just think for me, that's the hardest limitation here is just how on earth could you really justify the trade-off of the risks? But anyway, what about for you? Like, what's the take-home point? Is this practice changing? 
I mean, yeah, they have shown that lower systolic blood pressures lead to some better cardiovascular outcomes. But as you already identified, the absolute reductions were kind of slim. And so, you know, if you kind of figure out what the number needed to treat is, it's about 158 patients that you have to treat to avoid one cardiovascular event. And so, yeah, I guess like hypertension is a global problem. And so you are going to be helping patients, but it's not like we're seeing the kind of a number needed to treat of like five or 10 or something like, you know, you got to treat a lot of patients to try to improve these outcomes and you're going to be causing some side effects. So I don't know, you know, when it comes to like practice changing or not, I think it's going to be one of these kind of statements that are unsatisfying. Base it on your patient's unique comorbidities. It's kind of a patient driven decision about do they want to be on more medications? Are they okay with the potential risk profile of side effects? But I don't know that there could be a blanket statement just yet that like we really need to stick to sprint. Yeah, I really like how you talked about the number needed to treat, you know, taking it one step further, the number needed to treat is 158 people need to be treated for four years to prevent one cardiovascular event. So I've just come to appreciate that the number needed to treat is really helpful. And it's also thinking about, and how long do they need it to be treated for? So for me, I guess I just don't see this happening, but it would be interesting to hear from our family medicine colleagues who are looking after patients who aren't as sick as you and I and patients before they're in hospital. I don't know. I wonder if they're convinced by these data. Yeah, that's a really good point. I don't, it would be really nice to know like what their thoughts were. We'll just have to keep an eye out too, you know, whenever the latest updates from CHEP come out, does this get incorporated or is it also kind of a bit vague uh, going forward? I don't know. Yeah. Okay, cool, John. Well, um, this will be an easy segue because my trial that I'm covering is entitled a polypill with or without aspirin in persons without cardiovascular disease published in the New England Journal of Medicine in January 2021. And I should mention the polypill is to reduce blood pressure. So that is the segue. Okay, perfect. Polypills. I remember hearing about these years ago, but then I don't know, like other than some combo meds of blood pressure drugs, I don't remember them really taken off. But tell me, what was the question here? So can a polypill comprising statins, multiple blood pressure lowering drugs, and aspirin, can this potentially reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease among people who don't have cardiovascular disease at baseline? Okay, fair enough. And just to clarify, do you know how big this pill is? Like, is it a horse pill or what? Yeah, you know what? I'm literally going to Google images it right now, but I'm just going to make up that. No, it's not that big. Okay. <laughs> but but it's interesting you mentioned that because I never realized, for example, um, how big the pills are for some antibiotics that we commonly use. Amoxclav, massive. Septra, that's like a baby horse pill. Like it is really big. So uh, anyway, it's a good question that I don't know the answer to. Ah, uh, that's okay. Well, we'll figure it out. So, you know, lots of reasons why this is probably important. Uh, what do you think? Why is this important? Yeah. So, you know, I think it's important because obviously cardiovascular disease is one of the number one killers worldwide. So um, if we had one magical pill that could reduce the burden of cardiovascular disease and its associated morbidity and mortality, obviously that's a huge deal. Fair enough. And I almost wonder, you know, based on what we know nowadays, probably an SGLT2 inhibitor might've been thrown in the mix for this polypill, but I guess not this time around, maybe the next study. How do they do this study? What was the design? 
Yeah, I'm sure that one will be coming next. So um, this was an international double-blind randomized trial. Uh, it wasn't industry-funded, unlike last month's uh, trial on semaglutide. And essentially, they were looking for patients who did not have cardiovascular disease, but had elevated uh, inter-heart risk score. Have you ever heard of this score before? No, no. Me neither. And now I know why. It's because the people who ran this trial, they created this score. So um, um, I hadn't heard of it. And yes, the McMaster group are clearly world leaders when it comes to uh, clinical trials. And it turns out they also are when it comes to prospective cohort studies and validating risk scores. So this interheart risk score is actually pretty impressive in terms of its test characteristics. But anyway, um, patients were randomized to receive this poly pill, um, which included simvastatin 40 milligrams atenolol 100 milligrams hydrochlorothiazide 25 milligrams and ramipril 10 milligrams or placebo daily and remember it's a two by two factorial design so the other aspect of randomization is that you could also get aspirin uh on top of all that or placebo that looks like aspirin and they also had a vitamin d arm but i think we've promised ourselves that we would never talk about vitamin d so the inclusion criteria um, were age 50 plus as mentioned without cardiovascular disease but at increased cardiovascular risk using this interheart risk score there's a really nice website if you want to learn more but essentially um, it looks at whether the individual has diabetes, hypertension, smoking, levels of stress, diet, exercise, waist circumference, etc. They also included a run-in phase, which maybe I will talk more about. And the primary outcome for the polypill group was death from cardiovascular causes, MI, stroke, heart failure, coronary revascularization, or resuscitated from a cardiac arrest. And for the ASA comparison, death from cardiovascular causes, MI, or stroke. Okay, interesting. It seems a little aggressive. Like there's three blood pressure pills that you're just throwing at someone at once. Hopefully you've got some safety outcomes too. But first, you know, who was involved in the study? What did the patients look like? Yeah, I'll definitely get to that. But I was hoping to bait you a bit so you'd ask me more about what a run-in is because... John, this was my master's thesis, all about the methodology underpinning <laughs> run-in. So Let, let's let's rewind. Mike, tell me more. What is a run-in design? Yeah, yeah. I'm so happy you asked. So, oh God, I wish I could go back and find my you know younger self and tell myself don't do a master's thesis on run-in designs because it's just going to have no impact whatsoever. But anyway, the purpose of a run-in phase is essentially before you randomize people, you of course want to include patients who are going to adhere to the treatment and who are not going to have, you know, really, really bad side effects. I'll give you an example. So the run-in phase for this study was eligible participants then entered this run-in phase. It's about three to four weeks. And at that time, they got a low dose of the poly pill. And then at the end of those three weeks, the participants who had at least 80% adherence got to come into the randomized trial, as well as people who didn't have like, you know, some really overt side effects were also then invited to enter the randomized trial aspect. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, totally. Okay. Now, maybe, I don't know if you're going to get to this later on, but like, so why do the run-in? Well, yeah, exactly. So, so the goal with the run-in here is that, you, you know, you want to pick patients who are going to adhere. The last thing you want from a clinical trial standpoint is you randomize people and they just don't take the drug to which they're randomized, then you really have a useless randomized trial. So I remember when I was first learning about this as a grad student, I thought, 
wait a second. If you have run-in phases, that's really going to affect external generalizability. So anyway, the thesis, my thesis went down a real rabbit hole, but the take-home point was I actually don't really think run-in phases affect the external generalizability. But to answer your question, they're doing it because if you're going to do a five-year study, and it's going to take five years of your life and millions of dollars, you want to include patients who are going to take the drug. Fair enough. Okay, that makes sense. So I guess, you, do you want to tell me, what did people look like? Yeah, now I'll answer the question. So um, 8,000 patients were screened. 2,000 were not included because they failed the run-in phase, often because they had bad side effects. So you really got to keep that in mind when you're interpreting the rate of side effects thereafter. But anyway, they randomized uh, about 5,700 people, and the mean follow-up was four and a half years. That's remarkable. Average age, 64, 50% women. And unlike any other trial in the rounds table, this was like truly, truly global health. So um, 50% of participants were from India, 35% from the Philippines, Malaysia. In terms of their comorbid disease, um, 80% had hypertension, 40% had diabetes, 10% were current smokers, and 10%, at least at the start of the study, were already on uh, a blood pressure lowering medication. Okay, geez, those are big numbers. Um, impressive. Let's see what happened. Did it help? What were the results? Yeah. So, you know, whenever you have a two by two factorial design, it's sort of like, Ugh, what does that mean? In this case, really, it means that we have four different groups. You have a group of patients where they got placebo polypill and placebo aspirin. They got two placebos. You have another patient group that got the polypill and aspirin. You have another group that got polypill alone and then another group that got aspirin alone. So these are the different permutations here. So so what did they find? We'll get to that. So they had about 80% adherence at two years and 65% adherence at four years. But it's really important to note that drug discontinuation occurred not infrequently in the ballpark of about 40% um, in both the groups. So first we'll talk about some of the surrogate outcomes. Um, patients in the polypill group had a six millimeter um, mercury lower um, systolic blood pressure uh, than the group that was randomized to not get the a poly pill and an LDL lower of about 0 0.5. Let's get to the primary outcome. The primary composite outcome occurred in 5% of individuals who took the poly pill compared to 6% who took the placebo hazard ratio of 0 0.8. Um, and it's a composite outcome, but most of the outcomes were driven by death from cardiovascular causes. So, so that was the main aspect of the primary outcome, which was driving this significant result. And then the primary outcome for the aspirin arm was 4.1% versus 4.7% with a hazard ratio of 0 0.86, but wide confidence intervals. And then remember, there's also, you know, what did the primary outcome look like for the polypill plus aspirin group? Uh, and that was 4% compared to 6% in those who did not get it with a hazard ratio of 0 0.70. So those are the findings. Okay, I'm a little underwhelmed. Uh, what do you think? What are some limitations from the trial? Yeah, yeah. I mean, these are small effect sizes, okay? Like you got to convince a patient essentially they're going to take five new medications and maybe they'll have like a 1%, maybe 1.5% absolute risk reduction. That's a really tough sell. And again, remember, this is after a long run-in phase to select people who are likely to be adherers and who are likely to be able to tolerate it. 
So I, I wonder a lot about external generalizability. That's for sure. Okay. What do you think the take-home point is? I don't know. I mean, the take-home point. So one thing that was really striking is that like, hey, if you take a blood pressure medication, which has ramipril and atenolol and hydrochlorothiazide, <laughs> your, your systolic's only six millimeters mercury lower compared to if you did not. Like that seems underwhelming right there. So anyway, I think the take-home point here is that there might be a role for a polypill if you're thinking like from a population standpoint, but realistically, given the costs, the side effects, the unintended consequences, I'm just not sure if this poly pill is really going to be the answer to how we can reduce the global burden of cardiovascular disease. Yeah, six millimeters of mercury. That's all we could get out of three blood pressure drugs, eh? Okay. Uh, is it going to change your practice? No, I, I, I really don't think so. I think there are certain just like combination pills, what you alluded to up front, which can be really helpful for um patients. But will I be prescribing this poly pill? Well, I don't think it's Health Canada approved, so I can't. But if I could, I don't think I would. Yeah. How about you though, John? Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't think that the data is going to convince me. Um, I guess one other piece, and I don't know if it came up or not, but like, is this more expensive? Like, is it, or is it kind of cheaper because somehow you're able to kind of put everything together? Do you know what the cost for the pill like worked out to be? Did they comment on that at all? No, they didn't. And the, the pill itself was provided by the um, manufacturer of it. Like they certainly selected agents, all of which were off patent, which allows the components of the drugs to be um, inexpensive. However, there's been so many times, especially in the past you know, decade, where although the individual components are off patent, you can then create a new patent for the combo pill, which leads to, you know, all sorts of fraudulent behavior. Maybe that's too strong. Um, but what 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 can it can really drive up the cost of the medication and can also extend the patent life. So yeah. Okay, fair enough. So I guess the that brings us to the end of this kind of quick rapid fire episode. Do you have anything up your sleeve for the good stuff? Yeah, I mean, just somebody that you should follow if you aren't already. Have you heard of um John Boy Media? It sounds a bit like your name, John Boy, but it's John Boy. No, no, have not. Okay, follow him on YouTube. He has like these really hilarious and really engaging videos, all sports related, often related to baseball. He puts out a lot of really good material. And yeah, you'll start watching a few episodes. Uh, they're short, brief clips, and they're just like magic. But you have to see them to appreciate it. So anyway, give John Boy Media uh, um, a watch. Okay, how do you spell it? Uh, J-O-M-B-O-Y. Okay, I'll check it out. How about you, John? What's uh, What do you have for good stuff? Uh, so just like a fascinating story. Uh, this was in the CBC, but I think it kind of made browns across the world. A fisherman, I believe out of Cape Cod. He's a diver, uh, dives related to like his lobster industry. He was swallowed by a whale, but he lived to tell the tale. So he went on a dive. The next thing he knew was that he was inside the mouth of something. And I guess he was worried at first that it could have been a great white shark, which of course is smaller than, I believe it was, a, I can't remember what whale it was. Was it a humpback? So it was something massive. But he said he could feel around and he couldn't feel any sharp teeth. So that's how he knew that it was a whale. 
the whale eventually spat him out. He actually did pretty good. I think he did like dislocate an arm or something, but outside of that, he survived. It's quite a story. So some shoulder dystocia from being birthed out of the whales now, I think. (laughs) (laughs) You always talk about like the differential for like a posterior shoulder dislocation. Maybe, uh, yeah, getting expelled from a whale is on there too now. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Take that uh, overachieving elective student. Let's see if you know that pearl. (laughs) All right. Cool, John. Well, uh, great to chat and we'll, uh, we'll talk again soon. Okay. Talk to you soon, Mike. The Rounds Table is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Rounds Table. Special thanks to our audio editor, Emilio Garcia Flores. Also thanks to founder of the Rounds Table, Amol Verma, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director. We'd also like to give a big thanks to Seema Marwaha, the editor-in-chief at Healthy Debate, for all of the support.